Good morning, church. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up. We're going to study his word. Matthew chapter 24 is going to be our, our text. This is the wrap-up of the First Things First series. So we've been walking through passage after passage in the hopes of getting a better understanding of how Jesus gives his disciples priorities. So he tells them, do this first. This is more important than other things. And so we've studied a number of different texts that give us the shape of what Jesus sets before his his people, so we're going we're gonna to get into one more statement. So we're starting next Sunday, after we're finished with this series today, uh, Lord willing, we're starting next Sunday a, a series called City on a Hill. And uh, it's really important, hope that you'll be here for all those messages, so we're going to look at the New Testament and see what does it look like for us to be the church? What does God call us to distinctives that we want to passionately pursue as a church? I'll talk a little bit more about that tonight, um, but that series starts next Sunday. If you're here for the first time, this First Things First series, uh, we've walked through Jesus when he says, uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then when Jesus said, first be reconciled to your brother before you present your offering. And then first kind of deal with your own stuff when he said, take the beam out of your own eye before you start working on somebody else's eye. All right, and then we looked last week at the one who would be great must first become a servant. And then we finish out this morning with this statement that the gospel must first be preached in all nations and then the end will come. What a, uh, what a perfect time in God's providence for us to think about this, having sent out our friends, desiring for God to raise up more and send out more. And so if we want to faithfully follow Jesus, we do well to pay attention to the matters that Jesus sets aside as primary. And this is the last one we're going to look at in this series. Matthew 24, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. He replied to them, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus replied to them, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of labor pains. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So two questions for us to consider on our way into this text. First, what do you think about the church? What do you think about the state of the church? What do you think about the prospect of the church? So are you hopeful or are you cynical about the future of Jesus' church? And then more personally, if I could ask you this, how are you doing 
Will you persevere to the end in faith? Bring that on board in your own life, reflectively, asking the question as we dive into this text of Scripture, is Jesus going to be the treasure of my life until the end of my life? Is he going to be the treasure of your life until you cross the finish line at the end of your race? Are you going to be faithful to him by his grace? Or are we as the church going to stand with our finger in the wind to culture, trying to find out the direction the wind of culture is blowing so we can find out what our next move is? Friends, Jesus calls us to full allegiance, following him and persevering in faith to the end of our lives. And I think that's really the point that Jesus is driving at in Matthew 24. It's a call to endurance. It's a call to persevere to the end on mission as we run the race of the Christian faith. But the thing that's striking to me is this, the tone at the end of our passage in particular. There's this striking note of optimism and certainty. And it's striking because we got 13 verses of hell on earth, right? Just all hell breaking loose on the church for 13 verses, followed by a promise that cuts through all of that with just this certainty and assurance. So think about if you've been a part of Brook Hills for any length of time, we we close our gatherings by reciting the Great Commission from Matthew 28, where we're commanded to go and make disciples of all Nations. It's an imperative verb. Get out there and make disciples among all the nations. In contrast to Matthew 28, which we'll recite momentarily, Matthew 24 is a little different. Matthew 24 says that the proclamation of the gospel to the nations here isn't a command in Matthew 24. It's a promise. It's, Jesus is saying, it's going to happen. His words, verse 14, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world. Take it to the bank, Jesus is saying, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I I love it when Jesus uses that kind of certainty language. I love when he pulls out his omniscience hat and says, here's how it's going to go down. The task will be finished. I love when he uses that assurance, certainty language. And what you see there, those last two verses, in verse 13, Jesus calls the church to perseverance on mission until the end. And then in verse 14, he announces to the church that they will persevere on mission to the end. And again, that's striking because of the background. That's that's striking because the real situation that's going on right here in this text. Jesus isn't standing in front of this mighty army of death-defying Christians in Matthew 24. He's standing in front of 12 guys. It's about to be 11 guys. And even those 11 guys, if you read earlier in Matthew's gospel, they all have issues galore, right? The the immediate backdrop of this text is so as we come to Matthew 24, stuff's been going on. Jesus has been journeying from Galilee to Jerusalem for the final time, and he's traveling with his guys, right? They've just traveled to Jerusalem together. On the way, on the road there, he's told them three times, not once, not twice, three times. Hey, guys, just so we're clear, going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die there. I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to be executed, and I'm going to be crucified in Jerusalem. And here we are. Jesus' last hour is imminent. He can hear the clock ticking. We are in Holy Week. It's Tuesday. He'll be dead before the weekend. He'll be crucified before the weekend comes. He just, in chapter 23, just wept over Jerusalem. 
He's going to be buried before the weekend. And, and what are his disciples doing in verse 1 of chapter 24? They're gawking over how big the temple is. <laughs> right, look at these big stones, it says in another one of the gospel accounts. What huge stones, right? They're, they're snapping pictures. They're just, they're just in awe of the size of Solomon's temple. Teacher's going to be buried before the weekend, and, and they look like tourists, this is not an encouraging moment. Look, if we didn't know the end of the story, we're looking at these guys there at the base of the temple taking pictures and we're thinking, there's no way the gospel is going to be proclaimed in all the nations. If it's up to these guys, right? If it's, if it's the deck is stacked and it's kind of the gates of hell versus these 12 guys, we got to bet with the gates of hell, right? We, it's like there's no way these guys are going to get their act together and press forward. And then when you see them all turn tail and run, the moment Jesus is arrested, it's like, yeah, suspicion confirmed. This isn't going anywhere. And yet you keep reading and you find out this fledgling band of disciples who have been tripping over their feet for 23 chapters of Matthew's gospel are going to turn the world upside down through their witness, through their boldness. And I think our passage shows us and gives us a picture of the way of the world and the hope of the church. The way of the world and the hope of the church. And with that, I think this text gives us three priorities for a missionally faithful church. Three priorities for a missionally faithful church. The first is this. Know the truth. Know the truth. Just keep going in your outline and fill in that next blank. Don't be alarmed. You just notice that right there toward the beginning of the passage. Look down in verse 6. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. How often do Christians take Matthew 24 and do the opposite of what Jesus said? People read Matthew 24, Christians read it, and start screaming, wars and rumors of war, the end is near. Everyone be alarmed. And Jesus is like, I literally just told you, don't be alarmed. Literally just told you, don't be alarmed. End is not yet. Hear me? End is not yet when you see wars and rumors of wars. I, uh, I found a website earlier this week. It's called the Rapture Index. And it's a website that uses an, uh, an algorithm to calculate the likelihood of whether the rapture is going to happen today. And it calculates it based on 45 uh, categories that have end time significance. And so you look and there's a, a rating that's given, a scale of one to five next to false Christ, inflation, oil industry, Israel, Satanism, right? All this stuff. And they're going to give it one to five and then they add up the number and there's a key on the side. And, and the key in the right margin explains the numbers. 100 and below, quote, slow prophetic activity. 100 to 130, Moderate prophetic activity, 130 to 160, heavy prophetic activity, over 160, quote, fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> and when I checked a few days ago, this, this week, the rapture index sat at a scorching 178, right? Be alarmed. This Every place you click on this text just says, be alarmed. Right? There's webs, on the website, there's a timeline that tracks the development over history in many end times related areas. So abortion, arms control, uh, drugs, microprocessors, rock and roll music, 
Uh, so didn't know that the induction of Pearl Jam into the Hall of Fame of rock and roll had eschatological significance, uh, end time significance. They even leave instructions for what people are supposed to do after the website hosts have been raptured. Right? So there's just, all of this is right there on the website. And here's Jesus saying, verse 6, see that you are not alarmed. The end is not yet. Verse 1 to 14, friends, is the way of the world. Verse 1 to 14 is Tuesday night news every century for the last 2,000 years. The kinds of things that we see here. I, I wish I could take time to comment on the whole passage, but, but we did a study of this parallel account in Mark chapter 13 a couple of years ago. You might want to dig into that just to, to look more broadly at the the discourse as a whole. But one commentator, I think, puts his finger on Jesus' intention in this passage when he writes these words. In times of crisis, Christians should be the calmest people on the block. And I think he's going after that because there are only two imperatives in this text. Don't be deceived and don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Why? Because we knew what would get crazy. We knew what would get crazy. History. We pick a date. We knew it would get crazy. Hegel, the renowned 18th century German philosopher, called history a butcher's block. It's a blood's been shed and earthquakes and catastrophes have been going on for thousands of years. In other words, verse 1 to 14 is what we should expect in the time between the ascension of Jesus and when he comes back. Don't be alarmed is connected to two other imperatives in this text. Verse 4, don't be deceived. And verse 24, don't be led astray. And both of those have to do immediately with an unhealthy, unhealthy fascination with end time comings and goings. An unhealthy fascination, fixation on that that leads Christians away from faithfulness and obedience to Jesus Christ and the clear commands that he gave us when he left. He said, you got a task to do, I'm going, give you power through the Holy Spirit, be about the task until I come back. And Christians get sidetracked, looking every which way and signs in the heavens, and he's saying, be faithful to what I've given you to do, right? And Jesus says, don't be, don't be duped by false teachers and false messiahs, because they'll start cropping up as well. I had an interesting counseling appointment several years ago um, at the beginning of the counseling appointment, I had no idea what I would learn as I heard the story, but what I was, a person that I was talking to turned out to be a cult leader who proclaimed himself to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. And uh, wasn't ready for that, but, um, you know, if you were here last Sunday, this isn't like the three Christ of Ypsilanti in, in Michigan that I spoke about last week. This was, um, this was a card-carrying deceiver who was playing on the fears and hopes of very desperate people. He had already had a cult following in Texas, and he was back in New Orleans. He was back in town to hawk money again from his adult son who was in my college ministry. And so here we sat, me, his college-age son, and this man who proclaimed himself to be Jesus Christ. And he's trying to argue that he is, in fact, Jesus. There were a few notable and glaring differences that I tried to point out. One was, as I gathered in this meeting, he was a womanizer. He had uh, multiple accounts of drug possession. And apparently, as I would learn a few weeks later, he liked to beat up his son. 
for he was arrested for assault a few weeks after that for getting into an altercation with his son, instigating an altercation in the front yard in front of the apartment complex that his son lived in. And as I opened the Bible to try to help his son see the difference between his dad and the real Jesus and look at scripture verse after scripture verse, his dad was smirking the whole time. And in my last-ditch effort to rescue this boy from the spin cycle that his dad had put him in of confusion, I looked from the son to the dad, and I said, you're going to burn for this. You know that? So the real Jesus said this. If you cause one of these little ones to stumble, and his son was a new believer in Christ, said, the real Jesus said, you cause one of these little ones to stumble, your best option is tie a millstone around your neck and jump into the ocean. Translation, because I'm coming for you. Jesus doesn't play footsie with deceivers. God's word is very serious about truth and about the distortion of the truth. Jesus says here in verse four, watch out that no one deceives you. What's our response to this warning as followers of Jesus? It's this, and your notes, learn the scriptures. Learn the scriptures. We're gonna talk about this a lot more in depth next week, but, but listen to what the apostle Paul says. He's talking to his son in the faith. He's talking to Timothy, and he writes these words. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. What's this work that he's calling Timothy to? Work in the scriptures. Work to grasp it with both hands. He goes on to say, avoid irreverent and empty speech since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness and their teaching will spread like gangrene. He names names. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They have departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of some. Let me call you, follower of Jesus in this room, be a thinking Christian. Be a thinking Christian. Work in the scriptures. Christians aren't casual toward the pursuit of the truth. God gives us discernment, not through our passivity, but through our active engagement with his word. Here's something I think we're, we do well to acknowledge, to humbly acknowledge, every one of us. I can swerve from the truth. I can drift from the truth. If that's the case, that being true, let me just admonish you, friend in Jesus Christ. Look, don't just have a Bible. Work your Bible. Dig into your Bible. Feast on God's words, high school seniors, if I can just have your attention this morning, college is going to test your faith. Not that it might, college will test your faith. Don't think your faith is strong enough for you to persevere if you're careless about your intake of God's word. That's what he's saying here, don't be deceived, right? And we've got, he's given us his word to to tether us, to add ballast and weight to our lives so we understand which way is north. We understand what truth sounds like. This is why every Sunday, by the way, we do what we do. That's why every Sunday, situated right in the center of every one of our gatherings, is the careful study of God's word. 
Why? Because your private reading of the scriptures throughout the week and meditation on God's word and the public proclamation of God's word are part and parcel. It's the way that God builds strength in his people. He strengthens our faith through private reading and through public proclamation. That's why we're doing what we're doing right now. Know the truth. Don't be deceived. Second, keep the faith. Know the truth. Keep the faith. There's a clear call for them to endure to the end. And verse 9 through 13 actually turns up the ugly in this passage. There's a lot of ugly in verse 1 to 8, but it turns it up in verse 9. Because now it's not that out there ugly. It's not famines and natural disasters and earthquakes and international conflict, nation against nation. It's in here stuff. It's, it's you got a target on your chest and they're coming for you. Persecution is coming for you if you're faithful to Jesus. Pushback from the world is coming if we're faithful to Jesus. What's your... What's he saying? In essence, he's saying this. Don't expect the world's applause. Don't expect the world's applause. You know, when Paul went to preach the gospel in Athens, Athens didn't say, hey, we turned on the mic. It's hot, ready to go. You're the good news guy, right? We were waiting for you. We're so glad you're here. We got our John 3.16 placards. We're going to hold it up and kind of shake it there just to encourage you that we're listening. That, that's not what Athens gave him. What do you see when you see the people preaching the gospel in the book of Acts? You see stones flying in the direction of whoever's on stage, whoever's in front of the people. Right? There's pushback from the culture. It doesn't matter what culture it is. There's pushback from the culture. Why, why are we, Christian, why, why are we shocked when the world does what the world has been doing since the fall, resisting God. We, we shouldn't be shocked, and the reason is we have Bibles. Right? We knew this was coming. We knew our way would be unpopular. We knew we'd be exiles. We knew we'd be cities, uh, citizens of a kingdom that's above this kingdom, bearing our allegiance to a king that's over all earthly kings. We knew that would be unpopular. Our message would not be well received. L- listen to God's word. Here's Here's what the author, New Testament author John writes. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's not talking about the world in the sense of, of uh, people groups in the world. Obviously, we're called to love people groups in the world. He's talking about the world system that's bent against the kingdom of God. He's saying, don't love that. For everything in the world, he clarifies here, here's what I'm talking about, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, Pride in one's possessions. It's the air we breathe, right? Secondhand smoke of every culture in this world. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride in one's possessions. It's not from the Father. It's from the world. Verse 17. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. What's John saying? He's saying this world system is a sinking ship Christians, don't hold on to this world. It's going down. This world is going down. He's saying instead, commit your life to Christ. Nail your colors to the mast. Be completely, absolutely devoted and loyal to Jesus Christ and what he says in his word. One one story that I could share from Central Asia. You'll hear another one tonight if you make the meeting, so make sure you're there. But um, if you were here a couple of Decembers ago for Global Offering, you heard a story about a guy that we call Watson. He's a, a man from Pakistan who came to faith in Jesus. Jesus chased this man down in an axe-style supernatural vision 
set him up to receive the gospel kind of way, and then God brought someone along his path who shared the gospel, and then Watson believed. And Ryan, who's the leader of our church planning team there in Central Asia, was discipling him, just opening the scriptures and walking him through it, and he says, so, so here's what happens when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's time to be baptized. It's time to make a a statement about you following Jesus Christ and then to be added to the church. That's the pattern we see. And Ryan said wisely, he said, I know that that you're in a a difficult place because you're, you're new in the faith and you'll likely be killed if certain people find out that you're a believer at this point. You will be killed. And he said, so, um, so if you want to be baptized at this point, you want to be baptized in our house, we can fill up the, the bathtub as high as it can go, and we can do this thing right. And he said, but then the other option would be the beach. And Watson said, let's do the beach. And uh, Ryan said, well, then let's try to choose a time where people are not likely going to be there. It's not likely going to make a scene. And so they chose a Friday afternoon, kind of the peak time of worship for Muslims in that part of the world. And he said, so we'll choose that afternoon. So they showed up at the beach. Well, it turns out Muslims skip church too. So there were a number of Muslims who were right there on the beach, ready, just playing around and doing their thing. And, and Watson said, let's proceed. And out into the water they went. And Ryan said, in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and down he went into the waters, and he came up out of the water, and um, on their way off the beach, there was, there's a bucket, it's always there, it's full of water, so that the people can wash the sand off their feet before they get in their cars, and so they don't track it back into the house, and Watson just spontaneously decided to use that bucket to wash the feet of all of his newfound brothers and sisters in Christ, and while we were sitting there, just hearing his story in the in the room and getting a chance to know him, he said to Ryan, I wish you had held me under longer. And Ryan said, why? And he said, because you told me that baptism symbolized burial and resurrection and didn't feel like I was dead long enough. And then to hear him talk about how he's sharing his faith and how he needs to practice discernment because if he's not wise in who he shares his faith with, he'll die before he has a chance to share it with more people. And he said, if any member of my family finds out, the word will spread instantly. And he said, I'll probably be killed by my own brother. And here we are in Matthew 24. And Jesus is saying, you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Father and mother and brother will kill you because of my name. Don't expect the world's applause. Next, keep warm your affections for Christ. Keep warm your affections for Christ. What are these false prophets saying in verse 11? Well, whatever they're saying, it's leading people who professed faith in Jesus to think obedience to God doesn't matter. That's why verse 12 says lawlessness will multiply. Listening to false teachers, here comes lawlessness. It's multiplying. And look at the affections, how that's brought in verse 12. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. That's the love of many who have professed faith in Jesus, by the way. That's professing Christians. Their love will grow cold. There there is a relationship, friend, between what you love the most and how you live your life. Think about it this way. When, When I sin, every time I sin, 
I just loved something more than Jesus. If I loved Jesus above all things at every moment of my life, I would be sinless. I think that's what Jesus meant when he's talking about the dynamic between love and obedience. When he said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Obedience springs from a heart that loves me. That doesn't mean or imply that Christians will ever arrive at perfection. But friends, don't miss the point. One of the truest indicators throughout Scripture, one of the truest indicators of our love for Jesus is obedience to his word. It doesn't even compute to the New Testament to say that we love God and we're disobedient to his word. It doesn't make any sense. That's why the greatest commandment, if you're going to ask for just one commandment, he says, love the Lord your God. That's the big one, right? Love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything's downstream of that. All other obediences are really an expression of you loving God above all things. So the question for us, the question for you in this room is, is Jesus your treasure? Not the concept of Jesus. Is Jesus Christ the treasure of your life? Do you ask him? I would admonish you, fellow brothers and sisters, I would admonish you every day, pray that God would deepen your love for him. Deepen my love for Jesus. We don't have a platonic relationship with God where it's sort of all this just head exchange thing. It's all happening in a nebulous place. You read the Psalms, right? You, you listen to Jesus talk to his Father. You read Ephesians 1. It's a heart religion, Christianity is. He wants our hearts. God saves us and he gives us a passion to know him, to follow him, to obey him. So does Jesus have your heart? And maybe you professed faith in him, maybe even a long time ago, but when you think about it, he doesn't actually have my heart. Maybe that's a realization that you're coming to this morning. He's not my treasure. I don't like build my life around what he says. Maybe what you had seemed like faith. Maybe you thought it was faith in Jesus Christ, but on further thought, on further review, really it just maybe was a a passing moment, an emotional response, not wholehearted commitment to follow him wherever he leads. And if that's you, maybe you ask the question, so what do I do? I would just urge you to go right back to the beginning. Let's just, let's heat restart. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's ask the question, do you know what Jesus has done to rescue his people from our sins? Has God, the Spirit, opened your eyes to see the beauty and awesomeness of what Jesus did when he saw you deserving judgment and deserving wrath and he stepped into your shoes and went to the cross and paid your debt in your place. Because when God's spirit pulls back the veil and we see the price that Jesus paid for us, the amazing love that he has for us, it comes with this gift and it's a gift that lands into the heart And scripture calls it a gift of turning and trusting. You know what Watson's vision was that prepared him to hear the gospel was he was wrestling with guilt and shame and he had this vision of a man robed in white and he said he was shining. I could barely even look at him. He was shining and he said he put his hand on my chest and then threw my chest onto my heart and he wiped his hand across my heart and said, be clean. 
That's what the gospel does. It creates this turning impulse, this newness in our hearts. If you have a desire in that way, I would urge you, act on it. Right? Run in Christ's direction. Pray. Confess your sin. Open your life. Take him as Savior. Say yes to his lordship over your life. And then once you've done that, so if you're already a follower of Jesus, I'm talking to you, once you've done that, keep warm your affection for Christ. Jude's way of saying it in the New Testament is keep yourself in the love of God. Drink deeply, right? Fight to treasure Jesus daily. Pace yourself for the marathon of the Christian life. I love what commentator Sean O'Donnell said about this passage. The gospel demands distance runners, those who run toward heaven with hardship burning on our heels. Well, how well does that pull into it, this sense of Jesus saying, don't be alarmed, but don't stop. Keep moving. Persevere to the end. Hardship's going to be burning on your heels all the way through, but keep persevering in the faith. So know the truth. Keep the faith. And finally, spread the news. Spread the news. Two, two points of application. The first is this. Take the gospel to the nations. Take the gospel to the nations. Christianity in this world, in this life, must always be a missionary faith. Jesus' last words to his disciples, go get them, right? Take the news to the world. I'll give you the power of the Spirit. We'll fall on Pentecost, and then out you go to bear witness to me in all nations of the earth. New research actually came out just this Wednesday. I read a new survey that found, quote, half of millennial Christians believe it's wrong to evangelize. Half of millennial Christians believe it's wrong to evangelize. We just say, those millennial Christians didn't get that idea anywhere in the Bible. You, you can't get your convictions from God's word and ever arrive at the conclusion that evangelism is a bad thing for the world, that evangelism is judgmentalism toward the world. Evangelism is good news on the run. Evangelism is, hey, there's life. I found it. It's in Jesus. You can turn to him. You can trust in him. He'll take your guilt, your shame, your sin, your wrath. He takes it all. It's not bad news. It's good news. That's why our message that we carry to the ends of the earth is called good news. And what is Jesus saying here? This good news of the kingdom, certainty language here, will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You know, Matthew's gospel isn't a full transcript of everything that Jesus spoke in that moment. That's why we have Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel to fill in some things, details that we might have missed. And when you go over into Mark's gospel, Jesus says, this gospel must, not will be, this gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. So you ask the question, which one is it? Is Jesus saying, you will proclaim the good news of the gospel to all nations. That sounds like optimism. That sounds like certainty. It sounds like a promise. Or is Jesus saying to his church, you must proclaim the gospel to the nations. In that case, it sounds like a directive. It sounds like a sacred obligation to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. In other words, you bring these two accounts, Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel together, and what did the disciples hear on that day? They heard Jesus say, you must bring this good news to the nations, and you will. You will bring this good news to the nations. The next point is this. Cultivate a defiant hope. Cultivate a defiant hope. Jesus has foretold trouble for his followers in the days ahead. 
But he doesn't let them forget, end of our little passage, he doesn't let them forget the certainty of final triumph. You know, this passage promises eight things that we wish weren't true, followed by one thing that trumps them all. So you put it together, despite false messiahs in verse 5, Wars and rumors of war in verse 6. Nations in conflict, verse 7. Famines and natural disasters in verse 7. Despite persecution and martyrdom in verse 9. Betrayal and hatred in verse 10. False prophets and teachers in verse 11. Apostasy in verse 12. Jesus says, this good news will be proclaimed in all nations and then the end will come. So come back to where we started. How's your perseverance? Are you running this race in a way that you're going to finish it in his strength? And then come back to that other question. Are you hopeful or cynical about the future of Jesus' church? Author uh, Eugene Peterson died in October of last year. He was at the age of 85. He was a noteworthy author, evangelical author, um, one of the things that put him on the map is his, the message, the Bible in contemporary language. Many of you might be familiar with a number of other books. I, I just finished reading his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is a study of the Psalms of Ascent, a rich, rich study. He was a brilliant, brilliant scholar. He was trained and did his graduate work in Semitic languages at Johns Hopkins University, so no slouch intellectually by any means, a fine writer, and lived, apparently, a very compelling life. And so after he died, many Christian leaders around the world began to write pieces, articles, blogs to honor uh, his legacy. And Russ Moore, a Christian leader, wrote the following about his life. We hear how to mobilize the church. We hear how to teach the church about doctrine or missions. We hear what's wrong with the church. But rarely do we hear a wise Christ-following servant, speak of the church, a real, little, flawed congregation with awe. And I read that and instantly loved Eugene Peterson. I read that and I wanted to shout amen because I feel that when I look at you, Brooke Hills. I come into contact with members every week and I am awed at the grace of God when I see your tenacity of faith and I see your burden for the wide world, I just see your interest in God's word, a perseverance in suffering, and I'm awed. I sometimes feel almost the instinct to take my shoes off, like I'm on holy ground. Like God, God is so evidently at work in this person's life. It's like he's here and present among us as I hear this story because of your persevering obedience you ask Matthew chapter 24, what becomes of the church? All right, she looks like a mess right now, but what becomes of the church? Matthew 24, what do you see on the church's horizon? Matthew 24 instantly says, here's what I see. I see the global proclamation of the gospel leading to the glorious return of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Talk about defiant hope. Jesus says, I see the task getting finished. I see the gates of hell not prevailing against my church. God help us to see his church the way he sees it. 
right? Because what does that do? It, it arms us with boldness and motivation for the mission. When our sovereign God decides it's time, the nations will see. And God will. We have it on his word. He will save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Meanwhile, what is our task? While we wait for that day, we have a task. And what is it? Keep sowing. Keep sharing. Keep praying. Keep giving. Keep going. Keep sending. Trusting that God will use us for his glory. 